0: So there's eight people running for mayor of Chicago, and all she had to do is, you know, get in the top two. She couldn't even do that. And when her poll numbers were going down, she was like, "Oh, it's because voters are like sexist and racist,
1: racist and homophobic." Boy, that's
0: a great way to win people over. <laughs> you, you don't like crime? You don't like the shutdowns? Hey, by the way, you're you're also racist <laughs> and sexist and evil. Uh, okay, great. You know what? Maybe you maybe you should find another job, Lori. <laughs>
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Loopcast, Catholic Votes' weekly rundown of all things faith, culture, and politics. It's me, Tom, Erica, and Josh. And this week, we're going to start with something that's very much on the minds of Catholics around the country, has been on the minds for the past, man, 50 years. Uh, We're talking about a vocations crisis. And specifically when I talk vocations, not just marriage, I'm talking about priesthood. So what I thought was so fascinating about this article we included in The Loop Uh, it's a report basically trying to quantify this crisis and look for solutions as to how we can solve it. So Erica, I know you actually reached out to the person in charge for it. Really, really interesting findings there. Uh, What did you see?
2: This was an amazing report to cover. And talking to Rhonda Grunwald, who's the foundress of Vocation Ministry, the organization that put out the report, she made the point that without priests, we don't have the Eucharist and we don't have the church. So like you said, this is totally apropos, totally on the minds of all Catholics around the country. And this organization spent hundreds of hours gathering data on the state of vocations, priestly vocations in the United States, and analyzing that data every which way. So I want to dig into the numbers a little bit. First, of course, you want to establish, well, is there even a crisis? Some people are like, oh, it seems fine to me. I still have a priest at my parish. but Since 1970, the number of parishes in the United States has dropped from 18,000 to just over 16,500. And at the same time, the number of Catholic priests has dropped from 59,000 to just under 35,000. So it was a faster drop in the number of priests than the number of parishes and Catholics being served. The interesting part of this report, though, is that It's examining numbers, particularly since 2014. So we're just looking at the last seven to eight years in the church, and we're just looking at these numbers as the baby boomer generation of priests is beginning its sort of mass attrition, mass retirement, right? So since then, the decline accelerated. So since 2014, there was a 9% decrease in the number of active diocesan priests, And the total number of new priest ordinations, though, dropped a stunning 24%. And those of you who are listening, who live in dioceses where you've seen a lot of parish consolidations happening and a lot of talk about this, this is no surprise, but it's definitely a nationwide trend. And like I mentioned, it's a big issue now, especially because of the number of baby boomer priests aging out and retiring. And so we're looking not at having to replace every priest retiring with one more seminarian or one more new ordination every year, but we're looking at dioceses where the number of priests is dropping so precipitously that they're going to have to ordain two, three, four, five priests just to keep up with the amount of ministry that these priests who are retiring were doing. So the data looks at all the dioceses in the United States, every single one, and categorizes them by Catholic population. So you're comparing large dioceses like New York, Los Angeles against each other when you're looking at the health, quote-unquote, of the vocation situation in those. And then it's drilling down data um, based on the number of seminarians in formation as well as the number of priests being ordained yearly. Question. fascinating data. What, yeah. What,
1: what was the split like in terms of uh, diocese type? So when I want to think of New York <laughs> or Los Angeles. Those are massive, right? So yeah. what's that compared to you know places like Wichita or Missouri or something like that?
2: Sure. So if you go into the report, which anyone can download for free, it's on the website. You can also get the drilled down data for your tier diocese. So what they're looking at, what they're comparing aren't so much type of diocese as uh, the size, the Catholic population being served. And what they found that, predictably, the larger the diocese, the, the higher the tier, so tier one diocese, are struggling a lot more. You have a higher number of Catholics and you have a higher attrition of priests, which equals active priests in the larger diocese are serving a vastly greater number of Catholics than priests in smaller dioceses. So. You're in, looking at those dioceses really struggling to make those replacement numbers.
1: In some ways, that seems a little bit counterintuitive, right? Because some of the, the, the larger dioceses have more people, therefore more opportunity for vocation. So what's what what's the difference here? Is, is it kind of like a classroom size thing where, you know, smaller classrooms, so maybe you get more instruction, more personal contact, yeah. as opposed to a larger classroom? You know, maybe that's not the case. Well, what do you think?
2: Yeah, you know, that that's a really good analogy, I think, that in the smaller— One of the things the report looks at that I found really informative was where do priestly vocations come from? And they surveyed, again, hundreds and hundreds of priests who've been ordained in the last few years and asked them, how did you discover your vocation and what helped you to persevere in that? And they found that 75% of newly ordained priests report that they got their vocation in part because they were encouraged by a personal relationship with a priest. In smaller dioceses, Each priest is serving a smaller number of Catholics per capita, and so the likelihood of them having relationships with young men who are considering the priesthood and inviting them to the priesthood, it just goes up. So in a way, you think, well, more resources, resources in larger dioceses, more young men, raw numbers, but it's about relationship, and that's what this report concludes.
0: Well, and I imagine these larger cities like you know Chicago, Detroit, New York, L.A. just overall, the culture in these cities, not, and I'm not trying to talk to, about the Catholic subculture, I just mean in general, uh, larger cities tend to be much more liberal. And so you're fighting against those kind of forces. It just gets that, that much more secular. Um, whereas uh, other areas, not just the rural ones, but smaller uh, areas, I noticed on the, uh, I'm in Michigan, I noticed the Diocese of Lansing, where I, I'm not living in the Diocese of Lansing now, I used to. Um, it's like a tier three and man, mm-hmm. just like a lot of these tier three dioceses, they're punching much above their weight that it says here, they ordain three and a half times as many men as tier one. That's just amazing. You know? Yeah. You know? And it's just tiny. And so like we should, this, I hope this report, what I hope it does is have a lot of Catholics will look at this and say, you know, what's going on? It's kind of funny that we, we hear about the Bible belt in the South or whatever. and actually. I think it's not that helpful of a criteria. I mean, obviously, when they say the Bible Belt, they're not even talking about Catholics usually. They're talking about, they're the definitely Baptists not talking about no, Catholics. Yeah, I'm not yeah. thinking but about no. Catholics but, when but, I hear but no. that. <laughs> but no, but I mean, like, it, interesting, it, the thought is, oh, the Bible Belt, they're so much more religious. Even if you just look at Protestants, the Bible Belt is not as religious as actually, I'd like to, I heard someone call it the Pious Prairie. North South Dakota, the, uh, Nebraska, Kansas, all the way down into like the western part of Texas, that area there, the, the people are just much more faithful. So, and that actually holds true not just for Protestants, but for Catholics too. So to me, it's, it's not really that big of a surprise that the diocese in Nebraska and Kansas are doing really well. So we should learn from them. And, but I guess you look at La- you know the Diocese of Lansing. that's got some bigger cities in there, Flint, you know Lansing, Ann Arbor. and so you'd have to ask, and obviously a lot of rural areas too what is Bishop Boyer doing there that could be replicated in other places? Mm-hmm. That's what I think this, will, I, that's what I hope this report kind of builds on and gets people thinking about.
2: Yeah, and I think something else that the report pointed to that speaks to the smallest is beautiful theory, which is what I like to call it, where the smaller tiers are doing better. Something else the, the report points to is how how vital to the health of not only vocations, but to active priests, how vital it is to have a bishop who is acting as a father? Who is a present father to the priests of the diocese? And in smaller dioceses, a bishop can get to know every priest personally um, much more easily than in these larger, larger dioceses. And I know that in you know New York, Los Angeles, etc., there's auxiliary bishops that, so who can kind of fill in that gap. But but yeah, like you said, Josh, my prayer is that this report that vocations directors are looking at it, they can go in and take just the diocese data from their tier and see how they're lining up with other dioceses that are the same size as them, same numbers of priests. Um, They have a great, they have a really cool metric, which is um, it, it gives a percentage. If you wanted to ordain, if you wanted to ordain the number of seminarians you need to replace your current priest population, what's your percentage on how you're meeting that? I mean, my archdiocese of Hartford in Connecticut here We're only at 53% of where we need to be for replacement rate. But Cincinnati, which is the same size, same number of priests, same tier, they're at 156%. So you hope that this report inspires these vocations directors to like, call the guy in Cincinnati. What's going on? How can we start to replicate that here? And um, it's really exciting because there's a lot of signs of hope in here as well. Yeah, there are some amazing lay ministries going on. Vocation Ministry itself offers workshops. They offer priest convocations, and they've seen dioceses turn it around. Not just not in fifty or a hundred years. You know, let's grow the next generation of priests for a hundred years from now, but in the, in three years, in five years, they're seeing dioceses double and triple the number of seminarians. So a lot yeah. of hope, and with knowledge comes power, right? Like. You got to know what you're facing.
1: My favorite part of this story is it, it, it isn't a doom and gloom like we have a crisis and it's all over for you know like I feel like whenever mm-hmm. people broach this subject, it typically likes to focus on like oh well of course because there's the scandal and all the old priests are aging out and they didn't even like what they were doing anyway they want to get married whatever this is like a very not that approach it seemed like a very efficient effective approach and it was just because I'm I'm kind of a I mean I graduated with an economics degree I'm kind of a Econ nerd a little bit. But one of the magical things about when you can quantify something, then you can change it. But unless you know the problem, unless you quantify it, you can't do anything. And so lay ministries like this, it just seemed like such a no-brainer. Like, why haven't we done this before? Like I felt like we just sat and complained for 20 years. And then this pops up on my radar. I'm like, oh my gosh, this makes me so happy to know that people are smart enough to go out, and like, okay, well, let's diagnose the problem and then we're gonna come up with solutions. And then anecdotally anecdotally, I think a big thing is. Uh, like I grew up in altar server. I hope, you know, my sons grew up altar service. I think it was a great experience for me, but we had <laughs> truly like a, uh, a community. We had like 40 some altar servers every mass. and all. it's yeah, kind of mind-blowing I for some people.
2: Couple. It was amazing.
1: Yeah. It was pretty crazy. And the cool thing was, is like, we all went to the, uh, to the altar boy room. There's like, you know, 40, uh-huh. 50 of us. Dude, were... You finally said it. You
0: finally said it right. What? Ultra boy. Alter Stop boy. altar servers. <laughs> I mean, I know oh, it is Lord considered gosh. acceptable, uh, apparently, to have altar girls, well, but I've told e- none of my thing. girls are going to be altered. Uh, well, here. they can't be altar yeah. boys, well, so they're not okay. going to serve at the altar.
1: Here's the thing. Here's the thing. I said that, even though in my experience, like we only had boys allowed. like It, it wasn't even, there were no girl altar servers, even though there, there were 50 parents, of right. us, and that was precisely the reason it got so big, because yeah. it was like a young men's club in a way, and the thought was... Well, these people could become priests one day. We're gonna foster that vocation, right? Build them c- camaraderie, build a fraternity, and like we all genuinely—it was like a place to hang out. Like that was kind mm-hmm. of our like spot to hang out. And then, like, of course, we're all fighting over jobs. And I, all of my best friends, like, came from that area. So even if you think too, like, my vocation was marriage, I was prepared for that vocation by those male friendships I made there. And I know guys who are in the seminary right now who are all just serving women with me side to side. So. I think creating those spaces for young men especially uh, to, and I had, you know, very good communication with the priests and the deacons and, and we just were able, I was able to have very theological conversations and uh, I think it really strengthened my faith, but then I also saw a very practical, like, hey, this is how my priest lives every day. You know, he's over at the right. rectory, he's coming to play in ping pong, yeah. you know, like this is his life, like he's, he's, he's a normal person, you know, he's not this kind of amorphous Guy who just materializes the same mass and then goes off into the ether, like he was a normal dude who liked to to bike and and hike and like he was a cool guy. I mean, yeah, I, I was lucky I had uh, good role models like that. I think that's a big part of this equation.
0: Would it be nice if if this report though is if we could get you know some of these dioceses like like Lansing and you know Wichita if if they can get even that many more vocations and instead of importing priests from Africa, we could then Ship them from Wichita to Hartford and do a little mission territory I'll there. Take you know, them. know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, within our about own how country. Brave souls. Yeah. yeah. Brave oh my gosh. You walk in the belly <laughs> of the beast there. Some
1: know? of the African priests, some of the African priests that come over though, talk about like what a reversal of oh, our uh, fortunes totally like. I mean, we are lacking like, in that area. And we always talk about, oh, we got to go to mission out to them, but they're coming over here and serving us. Like,
0: my them. family's a good microcosm of this. Okay. So my grandparents had 11 children. And, you know, I obviously lots of grandchildren from that, right? So, uh, my grandfather's brother became a priest, a missionary priest to Africa and spent almost 50 years there. Right. As a priest, as a missionary. Wow. You say five, and, zero, 50. Yeah. It was wow. 49. Yeah. Was 49 crazy. years. Yeah. Uh, God bless him. He's still kicking. God bless your Father Daniel. And, <laughs> um, and so, He's, he's retired now, but the whole point is okay, so we had that vocation of that generation and the t- two generations after that not a single, uh, not another vocation from the children or the grandchildren. it was not encouraged at all in fact, it was pretty actively discouraged by my mother and just about all of her siblings and so what do you expect then you know if you actively discourage vocation, you're going to see less of it and now you say the, the Africans are coming back i mean of course these African priests i'm I, they're the best. I mean, they're so on fire with Jesus. I love them. I think they're outstanding, but I'm still kind of embarrassed, uh, for my country that we're having to become mission territory. Like <laughs> I, I want to be proud of my yep. country and I want to be chipping them out to yep. other countries and introduce them to the gospel. That's such um, a good point. And so so um, I think the big change, we're seeing so many more priests that are becoming ordained today that are John Paul and Benedict-style priests who are really just love the church, love the teachings, and they want to spread the gospel. And I'm not, I'm not trying to knock on the baby boomer generation. There's a lot of really good Catholics in the baby boomer generation. I'm not trying to you know, sweep with a broad rush, but there was a lot of uh, seminaries back in the day that would actively prevent good holy men from trying to enter the seminary and become priests. They were, they were showed the door uh, I, you know, you don't have to believe everything that's, you know, written about, uh, all, all the stories or whatever. I know that's uh, goodbye, good men and stuff like that. But, you know, there was, um, a lot of those places where if you really believed in the faith, you know, they didn't want you at all. I mean, yeah. so that's a lot of that's when you look back, you know, w- when people look at the history of this time, a hundred years from now, one of the biggest things people will remark on is what Pope Benedict did to clean up the seminary, so.
2: Yeah. Praise God.
0: uh, That takes, you know, that takes time, but it's a big change. It's been good.
2: What was his name? Rottweiler? (laughs) Our German shepherd.
0: Our German shepherd, yeah. I mean, he's just so not a Rottweiler. Nice man. (laughs) (laughs) Rest Rest in in peace.
1: peace. Amen. All right, we just did a little time warp here. Uh, We're here actually sitting right after watching the oversight hearing for Attorney General Merrick Garland. This is something that we absolutely are nerding about internally here at Catholic Vote. We've been intimately involved with the Haupt case, with the uh, riots and pregnancy center attacks of 2020. This is is very much a a Catholic in politics moment to shine. And so we thought we would bring to you the specifics of how we got here, what this hearing means, some of the top moments, and then what's going to happen going forward. So to start with, why is the attorney general in front of senators right now, Josh? What's this mechanism in which he's been brought forth to the public here?
0: Yeah, I think a lot of us are familiar with the Senate Judiciary Committee during the Supreme Court nominations, right? It's all these senators from you know from each party, and they're asking the you know the the judicial nominee all these different questions. And it goes on for days. That's stuff we're already familiar with. But the fact is the Senate Judiciary Committee has regular hearings, and they bring in people like the attorney general. And that's one of the roles that this committee has. Like Congress, our elected representatives of Congress provide oversight over these agencies. I think they need to do a lot more, frankly. But this is welcome. You, you know, this is not, a, it's very normal for a cabinet agency uh, secretary to come before um, Congress and testify and give, and that's, it's, it's a chance for, Uh, senators from both parties to ask questions and get feedback. And um, this one was was very entertaining, to say the least. I mean, there's so many things going on.
1: Yeah. Well, what stuck out to you as the most entertaining or best moment for you?
0: Well, I mean, I think, you know, I think Senator Ted Cruz, you know, he ran for president a few years back, but he was made by God to be in the Senate for moments like this. He's so good at questioning. He was grilling attorney general. Uh, Merrick Garland over this. He had pointed questions. He wouldn't let go. He was like, you know, an animal with his teeth in there. Uh, it was very good to see. He, you know, Senator Josh Hawley was just outstanding as well. Um, you know, he was just going after him. Like he said, he said to Merrick Garland, "You showed an unbelievable show of force with guns that I just note liberals usually decry. We're supposed to hate long guns and assault type <laughs> we- weapons, but you'll happily deploy them against Catholics and innocent children and." All pressed even further is like, this goes against your memo for, you know, because Mer- G- Mayor Garland had done a memo saying, don't, we don't want excessive use of force when it comes to uh, sending in the cops or the FBI or whatever. And so this, it was like textbook example, you went against your own thing. So uh, it was great yeah. to see that, um, you know, I, I applaud them. Uh, Senator Mike Lee started off a little, a uh, little slow, but in the second round of questions, he came in pretty strong too. Uh, one of the things I'm very happy about is that we have Marsha Blackburn there. She's uh, a, a pro-life woman. You know, we're so used to uh, the Senate, it's hard to get pro-life women. And she was, she did a great, great job of asking Mary Garland about this two-tier form of justice, where it seems like the elites get, you know, a, a pass by, and the, um, you know, average Joe like us, we just get the book thrown at us. So that was right a lot. And and, and one of the things. You know, they brought up obviously the per- prosecution of Mark Hawk. They brought up the Rad FBI memo. Mm-hmm. They talked about yeah. the memo that the Justice Department wrote about going after parents who were concerned about what was happening in their schools the school boards and made it you know, that was the calling parents dress domestic terrorists. Talk you know? about yeah.
1: a talk about a throwback. I hadn't I hadn't even thought about that in a hot minute, but yeah, parents were labeled as domestic terrorists while yeah, the world I was love- burning.
2: I love, too, that was uh, Senator Kennedy brought that up, and I could listen to his voice all day long, that accent. Oh, my goodness. But Mm -hmm. he brought up the the parents being labeled as domestic terrorists and the terror tag that the FBI was putting on certain individuals. And I loved when he said, he said, you know, this is going on their permanent record. And Attorney General Garland goes, oh, I don't think anyone has a permanent record. I don't think there's any (laughs) such thing as... And Kennedy goes... Give me a break. absolutely that happens you know that happens i know that happens and i was sitting there like i know that happens because we talked to kyle seraphim and he's like oh yeah these records never go away yeah and Mark garland's like i don't think anyone has a permanent record and well just, the, per- the permanent I, yeah.
1: record thing goes way further back like both sides mm-hmm. of the aisle hate the fact that there's permanent records that can be used against people like they talked about a woman in michigan that Had that used, Kennedy did talk about that being used to prosecute her. Like, yes, the FBI has permanent records and it has real ramifications. It shouldn't be something done lightly. You should be throwing that tag
0: on parents, essentially. Well, so, I mean, and to, and, to, and to echo that point, I mean, the thing is, Merrick Garland was like, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't think that's true. And all these questions, like, you know, I'm not sure about that. I have no clue, no understanding, no idea. Yeah, I don't know. You're in charge of the Department of Justice and you have absolutely no clue what's going on. I mean, I have uh-huh. to say, Thank you, Senator Mitch McConnell, for preventing this guy from getting to the Supreme Court because he is worthless. Oh, my gosh. Terrible.
1: 100%. Okay. So that's actually the question I wanted to ask. We heard a ton of, I don't know, I'm not sure. And really, senators did a great job of making him look either really incompetent or really unintelligent or just completely out of control over his office. So what do you think the true case is, Josh? Do you think he actually is that incompetent? Do you think that... Wow. He's just trying to play this as a way to get pressure off him. What's really okay? Happening? So
0: think about that. There was that school board association that put, you know, asked, uh, sent a letter to Merrick Garland saying you got to come down on these crazy parents who are coming after us. He's domestic. You got to call terrorists. them domestic terrorists. Yeah. And so they, you, you know, they barked, and he, you know, yep, yep, he jumped, and and so and then he retracted it. or kind of backpedaled a little bit, and it didn't didn't formally retract it. So you, from the school board thing to the rad Trab memo to the absolute insane um, uh, use of force against Mark Hawk, you, you're looking at a Department of Justice that's become totally politicized. It's indefensible. So it's no surprise during this mm-hmm. Senate te- Judiciary Committee he had no defense because it is indefensible. He should just resign. I mean, he's pathetic. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. Is there, Is there a path to impeachment? Like, what, what are the possibilities
0: here? Okay, so, I mean... This is one of those things where it gets really frustrating about politics. Like, should this guy—is this guy totally worthless? Is he doing such evil things, like by politicizing the FBI and the Department of Justice against pro life Christians? He absolutely is. Does he deserve impeachment? Like every founding father would be like, yes. Like now, like why are we even debating this? This is crazy. <laughs> but in today's yeah. you know political climate, we're like. Well, I don't know. I guess we'll just have to have a few more committee I don't know what more you need. This guy should be booted out immediately. Will it happen? Probably not. The fact is, if you looked at the cabinet, not just on the issues that I care about the most, I mean, the ones I care about the most, I mean, which guy would I remove? Would it be Merrick Garland or would it be you know, Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra? I mean, oh, they're gotcha. both so horrible. Oh, they're man. both so terrible. Cardona. The question, Ugh. though, is if, if just... It, Putting aside just my issues I care about the most, you would have to think, you know, Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas would be the first one to be impeached. I mean, the border is mm-hmm. wide open. I mean, it's just like yeah. hundreds of thousands yeah. of people come in every month. It's it's outrageous. It's like, are we and a And came we up in the hearing today. And so, right. But mm-hmm. they asked, you know, senators, re- Republican senators, like, do you think there's the votes to impeach him? Like, he would be, it's like a slam dunk. It should be, right? It should be a chip shot. Like, yeah, no. We don't have the votes for that. Not even for that. Okay, wow. Now, now, why? Why?
1: <laughs> like, if you said it's such a slam dunk, I don't understand why Republicans wouldn't all just get together and be like, yeah, he's gone. Yeah, I mean... you know, We it, don't
2: own the Senate is the problem. Well, we just, did not win the 2022 midterms. <laughs> well,
0: that's part of it, yeah. but like, you know, I mean... Every Democrat is worthless, and half the Republicans are. So, I mean, what do you want me to say? It's going to take a while before we reform yeah. things. I mean, right, right, right. But
1: you know, something interesting. I think that intersects with all this too. So, Lori Lightfoot officially has lost uh, her mayoral campaign. That that came across last night. And Mayor of Chicago Mayor, for the listeners. Mayor of Chicago. So, Lori Lightfoot was kind of heralded as this rising star in the Democratic Party. She was the first openly gay uh, African-American mayor of Chicago. And she also made history to become the third mayor of Chicago to not get a second term. Uh, yeah, it's first very time unusual in 40 years. First time I'm in 40 man. years. And, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm from the Midwest. Chicago is kind of the epicenter of politics, I guess, in the Midwest really striking rebuke to, to her and her it's cabinet. Uh, beautiful. she is one of the first mayors, I think to really face true, uh, like comeuppance for their treatment of, accountability, uh, the pandemic right. and, and crime and all of that. And so we're going to see more mayors have to overcome that. Clearly, Lori wasn't able to do it. Why do you think in the case, in her case, she was unable to get yeah. past those
0: hurdles? It's worth noting it wasn't even close. So there's eight people running for mayor of Chicago, and all she had to do is you know get in the top two. She couldn't even do that, right? So to get reelected, mm-hmm. she would need 50%, but she, she couldn't even muster like 25% to get in the top 2. She got, I think she 17%. got 19%. For... She was terrible, dude. <laughs> not even, dude. It was not so even like close. Like crime, everything, COVID shutdowns and 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 where poll numbers were going down, she was like, "Oh, it's cuz voters are like sexist and racist." Racist and homophobic. that's racist, a great way right? to win She'd people over. Play the racism <laughs> card. You don't like crime? Yeah, they're
2: going to love you, you now. You don't like the
0: shutdowns? Hey, by the way, you're you're also racist <laughs> and sexist and evil. Uh, okay, great. You know what? Maybe you maybe you should find another job, Lori. One of the two
1: guys that beat her and is going to the runoff is African American. So Mm -hmm. it's only racist when it affects you and you want to use that as a card for why you lost, right? Like that. It's kind of sad, I guess, how people use that as a way to not just personalize whatever. It's
0: toxic. This is the thing that frustrates Mm -hmm. me. Like if you look at race relations in the United States, you know, it was improving over time, year after year after year after year. Long slog. It took a while, no question. And then he gets about 2014 and then starts going Mm -hmm. down again. Now, what happened? I would say it's, well, you know, Obama administration, all that, all the mucky muck stuff that they've been promoting, plus social media, which I think has this, you know, big negative effect where everything gets blown out of proportion. You see one guy pops off and says something really nasty, like in somewhere in the middle of Kentucky. And all of a sudden, everyone says, every white person thinks like this. It's like, Give me a break! This is it's outlandish, it's distorted view of reality. The race relations were actually better in 2012 uh, than they are today. It's gotten worse. You know what's crazy too
1: about what you just said about one person coming out popping off, and we saw it over COVID. What what was released with the Twitter files was many of those accounts that had high follow counts, high engagement, things like that, were fake. Actually, they were created in order to stoke uh, division and keep people at each other's throats. Uh, truly, like a lot of the the worst of the worst controversial accounts, actually are fake. They're not real. So it's but social media once again perception of reality, right? And so it's easy to hit the retweet button. It's easy to hit whatever. But I think specifically in the case of Lori, I was doing some research on it, and she had a very divisive, uh, governing style, and, and she was kind of seen as this outsider, tough. You know, she's going to be a tough-nosed mayor of Chicago, really crack down on crime, really whatever. But she didn't at really. At uh she didn't reach across the aisle with an open hand. Like she she I very much enjoyed I
0: mean, she, she doesn't need it. she doesn't need a single Republican to be a successful mayor of Chicago. Sorry. Right. I mean, she can't even do co- she can't even do coalition politics. She can't even work together with the moderate, you know, communists in Chicago. I mean, this is kind of yes. crazy. I like mean, that. she
1: called like the she called the president of the fraternal order of order of police there racist openly while she was the governor and it's <laughs> like are you serious? You're not even going to work with your police department here? like Yeah. So I think she didn't make any friends for sure. She obviously uh, very much enjoyed her power and being very draconian. And she actually took pride in that. I think that rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. And a lot of well, business have escaped Chicago as well, right? I mean, major businesses are going to Miami, et cetera.
0: Yeah. The lesson we need to take from this though, is that getting involved in your local government is very important. Like school board elections, you know, mayor's race, you know, all that kind of stuff. It it doesn't seem as interesting, you know, um, as you know the race for president or governor or something like that. But oftentimes that can make a real big difference. Like it is objectively good, just good for government that she is just defeated. She was terrible. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah, and and I guess it ties in with uh, Merrick Garland and and Lori Lightfoot in that when you have people who are like that out there, if you have people devoid of devoid of morals and like a Christian worldview. So that's why it's important for like people in this audience to start getting involved. Right. Because when people like that are put in positions, they're able to actively combat people who hate people of genuine religious faith. And I think the department of justice has shown no tolerance for people of religious faith. I mean, there were senators from the other side of the aisle, uh, who are very pro abortion radically. So, um, uh, Senator Hirono came forward and talked about how we need to protect pregnant people's access to abortion, and yeah. what is the de- Department of Justice doing to protect that? So that was mm-hmm. an interesting debate as you well. Know, actually, like,
0: there was a funny question though. She she was like saying she was, uh, uh, Hirono she's so I mean as dumb as a box of hair. She's so funny, but she far far. asked a question basically. <laughs> Aloha. This whole rumor, uh, like oh that, that somehow. These pro-life conservative lawmakers are going to try to forbid women from going from state to state if they wanted to procure an abortion and, c- and c- kill their child. And Eric, it's like, yeah, I've not yeah. heard any such things like <laughs> yeah. that. I've, no, if, he I now, if you couldn't
2: even countenance that, like, He's no, like, no what? I
0: don't see that at all. Actually, uh, like, I mean, what what? Like. I try as yeah. respectfully as you can, like, are you from another planet? Which you know
2: <laughs> Well, I think that do. that like she's of the same cut, the same cloth as Lori Lightfoot, right? It's this it's intentional divisiveness with the intent to destroy the other side. This is not a consensus building. This is not a let's figure out a way for all Americans of various persuasions to live together and to have good lives and live safe lives and be able to raise kids the way they want to. It's an intentional uh, divisiveness, and it's using deceptions like her misleading question that this is even happening in the States right now. It's not. Um, but it's doing that in order to force people into tribes, and then through power, you destroy the other tribe. That's yeah. basic socialism. It's basic Marxism. It's basic atheistic politics, Sololinsky methodology. That's true. And such are all good part point. of that same school.
1: Yeah, such a good point. I think that wraps it all together nice, because... What the Department of Justice is doing to people by labeling parents who are upset at their school boards, it's just further aggravating them. Like they have every right in the world to be upset at the government and the world. It's the same thing with COVID too. Like it just divided everyone so much further. It just brought this huge gap. And now there's people that are never going to trust the government again, ever. And I think very rightfully so. Like there's groups that, and I think once again, we don't want to get too doom and gloom here in the Loopcast. We try to avoid that. I see that as a positive. I don't think anyone is worthy of completely uh, unchecked trust. Anyone. I think that the more people involved in politics and the other more we're Jesus. involved on actual cult, other than Jesus. Sorry. <laughs> Thanks for the check on that, Josh.
0: No, I think you're right, though, Tom. It, it's good that we, it's good for pro life Christians and Catholics to have open eyes and about the yeah. reality mm-hmm. before us. So I agree with you, Tom. But we're not being, I don't think that's pessimistic. I think if, it's like it's unfortunate this development where we have, you know, the Department of Justice going after pro lifers and Catholics. That's terrible. But it's good that we see it with open eyes so we know what's going on. Right. And there
1: are representatives who are very much grilling, are are aware and are fighting back. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. And okay. and we know because we work with them. Like we've we are on a contact basis with a lot of these senators. So to see them really show up and stand up for, you know. Our people, yeah, right? Really like these encouraging, are everyday Yeah, no, yeah. I, that
0: cannot be understated. By the way, thank you on that. Because the fact is, I, for so long, I've been following this kind of stuff for 20 years or whatever on, on politics or whatever. And on the left, you'd have these left wing senators like would just scream and holler and really give it to the person and with tough testimony. And then on our side, the Republicans are like, well, there's a rumor that you were not so nice about something. And could you kind of maybe explain and, and tell you really didn't mean that, did you? I'm like, oh, no, I didn't mean that. We're all friends. You know, it's, like a, it's like baloney. So it's like, wow. Now we have Hall, Josh Hawley, Mike Lee, Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz was killing it. Marsha Blackburn, John Kennedy, these guys, they were outstanding. It was wonderful.
2: Yeah. Thank you, guys.
0: Yeah. Quite Perhaps. the fireworks. Thanks for getting better, all right.
1: baby. All right. For this next segment, uh, Josh had the pleasure of sitting down with Louis Brown. He is the executive director of the Christ Medicus Foundation. Uh, really interesting interview, specifically on religious freedom for doctors and how we can actually defend that here in America. So on to the interview. Louie, thanks for
3: for joining us. Great to be with you, Josh. A huge fan of Loop and the work that you're doing there. So a joy to be with you.
0: Help us out here. I mean, what I found out is, you know, the, the Department of Health and Human Services back actually during the Trump administration in 2019, they put out this, um, they put out a new rule that just clarified and said that healthcare professionals, doctors and nurses, uh, people who are working in that industry would have religious freedom uh, when, it, when, when it entails uh, important moral uh, questions like surgeries or procedures that went against their religious uh, views. Um, I mean, I guess the first question right off the top of the bat, but that rule only got started here about two and a half years ago. I would think that... Um, you know what has the reaction been from uh, from Catholics to that initial role that the Trump administration put in? What the federal law says, from the First Amendment to the Religious Freedom Restoration Act to the
3: federal medical conscience laws, uh, that you federal law says you must, a healthcare entity, a state, a municipality must respect and protect the moral and religious convictions of medical professionals, of faith based healthcare entities, of pro medical professionals, uh, under the Trump administration. Uh, the Trump administration did some great work uh, to uh, enforce existing federal law and say, this is how we're going to ensure that there's real teeth to, to federal law uh, and the HHS's enforcement uh, of these federal medical conscience and religious freedom laws. Unfortunately, what we're seeing in the Trump, or excuse me, in the in the Biden administration is the rollback of those enforcement mechanisms. Um, the duty of the president and his administration is chiefly to preserve national security and to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. And when HHS fails to enforce existing federal law, the Freedom Restoration Act, the First Amendment, the federal medical conscience laws, they're failing their basic duty to take care that the laws be uh, faithfully executed. And what we're seeing in the Biden administration, Josh, is just a rollback not only of the Trump rule, but an attempt to, through, a, uh, through regulatory action, to roll back what Congress has deemed to be the law, uh, and that's tragic for the country. It undermines human dignity, undermines the sanctity of life, and it undermines health and safety for all patients
0: in America. Yeah, now you mentioned about how the Trump rule in 2019 put a lot of teeth behind it. One of the things that we noticed uh, that was very helpful that, that the Trump administration had done was they actually opened up an office... Uh, in the Department of Health and Human Services that was dedicated to civil rights and specifically towards making sure that, you know, doctors and nurses who had these claims uh, that their religious freedom was being violated, their conscience was being violated by, by being forced to do procedures that they that went against their deeply held beliefs. They they opened up that office and um, they put some teeth behind it, put some force behind it. Uh, but what happened to that office, um, you know, when the Biden administration started...
3: Right as far as I know, that that division of uh, that division within the Office of Civil Rights, the Conscience Religious Freedom Division, that's still going. Um, You know, I worked at HHS. I was uh, part of the prior uh, presidential administration HHS. That's a great office. It has great leadership. They're still going. Um, But what we saw under the prior presidential administration is that one of the areas um, within our civil rights and healthcare that are most frequently being violated is are religious freedom and medical conscience rights. The, the, basic, the most basic civil rights we have, Josh, as you know, is the right to life, uh, the right of conscience, and the right to exercise our religious freedom. It's the deepest part of who we are. All other uh, human and civil rights flow from those very basic uh, civil rights. And so the most tragic, horrific area that I saw when I was at HHS um, uh, in terms of violations of basic civil rights was in the area of persons with disabilities, the area of the unborn and infants, but also in this area of of the violation of conscience and religious freedom convictions of medical professionals. Uh, And so what we uncovered, what we saw in the last administration is a massive uptick in complaints being filed at HHS uh, by doctors, other medical professionals, nurses saying my religious freedom rights, my rights of medical conscience are being violated. And I can tell you so many stories. I know of a medical student in a very conservative state uh, whose conscience rights, her uh, really her religious freedom rights were violated because of her Catholic and pro-life beliefs uh, about uh, the beauty of motherhood. I know of a physician who is at the top of his, uh, in the top of his uh, field, uh, who's at a public uh, medical institution, uh, who what received and experienced a certain level of persecution because of his pro-life beliefs, because of his, and really because of his beliefs about about human sexuality. Uh, I, when I speak to undergraduate uh, Catholic students, when I speak to uh, Catholic students that are in the healthcare fields and studying, they are afraid and self-selecting out of reproductive health and other areas because of the level of persecution uh, that's going on uh, towards medical doctors, towards nurses that have Catholic beliefs. So this is a huge area. It is one of the most egregious areas uh, of Civil rights violations in healthcare. Uh, and it impacts, it's not only a religious freedom issue, it's a human dignity issue. What we're seeing is, Josh, is the stripping out of religious convictions, the stripping out of moral convictions, the stripping out of conscience, the stripping out of faith, out of the healthcare system. Uh, and it's being replaced by the financial motive. When the financial motive is the main driver, Josh, in healthcare, who loses? The human person loses, and particularly the vulnerable lose. Uh, so this is this is a serious thing. It impacts human dignity and healthcare for everybody, particularly the vulnerable. Uh, and we need more, not less, enforcement of
0: conscience and religious freedom in healthcare. Now, what would you say to somebody who says, "Religion? What does that really have to do with medicine and, and you know nurses and doctors? What does that have to do with that?" You know, and I think the response would be, "Well, actually, you know, you go to a doctor and you go to a nurse. You want you want to be treated." Person to person, you don't want to. We're not just going to a robot. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Right. It's like I think people actually want people in the uh, medical field that have a a core, you know, a core of ethics that they just won't violate.
3: Yes. No. That's a wonderful question, and it's so important, Josh. I uh, heard from a really remarkable uh, faith-based medical uh, physician say that in my system, in my medical system. the medical professionals are focused on dominating the body. We're not focused on loving the person. They're focused on showing that they, as medical professionals, uh, can overcome uh, the challenges they may receive from the body. That they're better than the body. It's a certain ego that she was applying that's there, and um, that shouldn't be what healthcare is about. What healthcare should be about is the love of the person. It's the love of the person. So we know from our Judeo-Christian um, uh, principles, beliefs, and virtue, uh, that the greatest gift is love. And the modern healthcare system in the United States, also in Western Europe, uh, and, and and really even the Middle East, is based on a fundamental conviction about love of God and love of neighbor. And religious freedom at its highest sense is about loving and caring for the patient. If we take uh, are the exercise of religious freedom understood as love of God, love of neighbor? Out of healthcare, we strip love, we strip caritas, we strip human dignity out of the healthcare system, uh, and then we see we will see an increasing dehumanization of patients, a throwaway, abortive mindset to patients deemed unworthy, unplanned, uh, and unnecessary. Uh, and the way that we counter that is. Uh, a, a greater sense of human dignity, a greater sense of the duty and obligation to care for the sick of su- and suffering because of love of God and love of neighbor. And that's just one of the reasons why uh, our moral and religious uh, convictions, ethical, moral, and religious convictions are so important in the healthcare system. It's how we keep love and dignity in our healthcare.
0: Yeah, but it's just kind of funny because you have so many commentators today, left and right or whatever, they, they, they kind of welcome that corporation's have decided to have like a conscience and that they they're not just out for the profit motive and they, and they have like a you know we care about your community and they donate and, you know to these charities if that's the impulse that we like you would think we would want mm-hmm. doctors and nurses to be able to have that same kind of level of conscience and care for neighbor instead of saying no we want you to leave you know your your most treasured op- um, opinions and thoughts on morality and ethics uh, on Sunday, and not to ever, in, right, be involved in healthcare. It's just, it's, it's bewildering to me, you know. That's right.
3: Yeah. So, you know, we have an administration that's saying we're going to strip uh, ethics, we're going to strip medical conscience, we're going to strip uh, uh, religion and religious faith out of the out of the healthcare system. Uh, and then what's left? What's left is treating patients like widgets. What's left is treating pa- patient patients like dollars. Uh, in objectifying the patient uh, for financial gain. Uh, the American people deserve better than that. We should be treating uh, p- patients and seeing healthcare first as a ministry of healing to love and care for the sick and the suffering. That's what uh, the uh, extension and advance and protection of conscience and religious freedom in healthcare ensures that we do. It ensures that we care and love for the sick and the suffering, particularly
0: the people that are most vulnerable. So this, uh, you know, new um, regulation, this new rule that was proposed by uh, the Biden administration under Secretary of Health and Human Services, Javier Becerra, who, like Joe Biden, claims to be Catholic, yet supports abortion on every turn. Uh, This new rule that they proposed, as you're saying, is basically gutting these religious freedom protections that were put in place just, you know, two and a half years ago. Yeah, there's um, a
3: there's a lot that they're doing and and we have to be Catholic first. So we support this administration where they're getting it right. And, you know, we have to speak out when they're getting it wrong. And so where is they're getting it right? Great. When they're when they're getting it wrong, we have to speak out loudly. So they're really getting it wrong here. Ever since the Dobbs decision came down, they've done a, a few things in addition to what you're talking about. The first thing is that they issued guidance to emergency departments across the country after Dobbs falsely claiming that they had a legal obligation uh, under the Emergency Medical Treatment Act uh, to provide abortions in some circumstances. That's not what the law says, it's unlawful guidance, in my opinion. That's the first thing. They also issued guidance, and I haven't checked recently to see if it's still active. Uh, but suggesting to pharmacists that under certain circumstances, uh, they must provide certain products uh, that can become abortifacients. Uh, They also issued uh, a regulation, uh, you know, this is before Dobbs, under Section 1557, that clearly provides a transgender mandate and suggests that they're going towards an abortion mandate, saying that if you fail to uh, provide uh, abortions, saying that if you fail to provide Uh, transgender procedures that you may be violating federal civil rights laws because you're discriminating based on sex. That's not what the law says today. Uh, I think that those that proposed rule as it stands currently is unlawful. Uh, And so that's not good. What we saw with the conscience rule that they issued not too long ago, the new uh, conscience rule, uh, it it, it really, you know, it kept some protection in place under their new conscience rule. But it really, as you said, it really gutted uh the enforcement of conscience, uh medical conscience in the United States in healthcare, very much uh ripping to shreds uh, the work that the prior administration, the hard work the prior administration had done to enforce this vital uh civil right that's so important to human dignity
0: and healthcare, particularly for the vulnerable. And that's very concerning. We need to speak out. Well just to help our audience understand these things, like, you know, the legal guidance that you mentioned that's just a uh, that's a document like a memo right. like it's sent out as you say to emergency rooms this is their opinion of what the law says right. which as you say uh, it sounds like they got it dead wrong right and then we're also talking about here with um a proposed regulation right there's a process uh, under federal law that these proposed regulations have to go through so what they've done is they proposed this federal regulation and now the 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 American people, the public, have a chance to make their voices heard, and there's a website, and it's you know regulations.gov. Right. We have a link to it on a Catholic vote, and it, you know, we we, we can walk it right through the whole process. People right. have an opportunity to read what's going on, and then we encourage people to submit a, an official public comment telling the HHS not to weaken these conscience protections. And we really encourage people to put, you know, we give them some talking points, explainers, what's going on with this. And I think what you've just said here has been very helpful as well. But we ask people actually to put it their comments in their own words. And the reason I say that is because if if 2,000 people get on there and they say the exact same thing, then the, the then the feds could just treat that like one comment. But here's what's going on. If we have more and more people making unique comments, that take a little time here, a few minutes of your time, it can be really helpful, but if they're unique, the federal government is supposed to, if I'm, help me, correct if, me if I'm wrong here, Louis, but the uh, officials at the Department of Health and Human Services are expected to, or in fact, are supposed to respond to these comments, not necessarily to the, to the person who submitted it, but what they're supposed to do is have some sort of response for each of the persons who are submitting comments. So the more comments we have, and especially ones that are unique, we have the ability to make sure they're not going to rush this. They have to take their time and go through what people are saying. We already have over 2,000 comments just from Catholic Vote listeners uh, and readers uh, to this public comment thing. And, you know, it's we got till about March 6th. And I just say, let's get the word out. Let's right. let people I think know. It's,
3: thank you for what you're doing. I think it's so important. That really does matter. We have uh, federal laws that Congress passes. And for decades, Congress has passed federal legislation that's been signed by the president saying uh, it's the policy of the United States to protect religious freedom and medical conscience in healthcare for decades. Uh, what HHS is to do, supposed to do, HHS is supposed to simply enforce what Congress has said. But ins- instead of enforcing the law by regulation, uh, they're essentially trying to legislate, they're doing the job of Congress. They're undermining the will of the American people, which has been for decades, uh, and signed into law by numerous presidents to protect conscience, to protect religious freedom and health care, to protect the human dignity of the vulnerable, and our religious freedom right to love and serve the sick and the suffering. And so what we saw with the conscience rule, just to go back to that, is they, my understanding, is they have maintained, uh, uh, you know, they maintained some things, but they've jettisoned so much. And so the work that you're doing, Josh, uh, to have people engage with our government, to uh, engage uh, with uh, our Republic, Republican process, our Constitutional Republic process, I don't mean partisan, but our Republic, and to engage with HHS officials and say, look, in dialogue, um, this is not right. Uh, we want to protect conscience. We want to protect religious freedom. This is a vital way of protecting the poor and the vulnerable. This is a vital way of ensuring healthcare access by protecting the rights of healthcare providers to love and serve. It's so important. So I can't encourage people enough to make comments, to engage. As someone that has served previously in HHS, I can say that these comments uh, very much matter. It's an important part of uh, our Republican democratic process. Uh, and so it's uh, now is the time uh, to speak out about these things. Now is the time to exercise and protect our freedom
0: uh, to love the sick and the suffering, and to share with them the healing love of Christ. So important right now. Well, I would just recommend any of our listeners, like I said, to to get on there. Uh, go to Catholic Foe to, to click on the links and follow, read up on what's going on. Find out what's going on here. This is our government. We have a say in what's going on here. And especially those uh, doctors and nurses and healthcare professionals, uh, you know, find out about uh, Christ Medicus Foundation. You guys are doing great work. Thank you, uh, but especially if you're a doctor or a nurse, get on there and make a public comment and share your experience as a healthcare worker and why it matters. Uh, your your voice will matter uh, even more so. But we want everyone, because so many of us know doctors or nurses in our own families, and we want to make sure that they have the ability to, you know, continue their practice and in sync with their, you know, moral views and, and religious views, so... Uh, Louie, thank you so much uh, for being on the program. This has been a you good do. conversation.
3: It's, it's such an important loop. These are important, and thank God for the loop. It's a real work of, I believe, the Holy Spirit. So grateful for you, Josh. I read it pretty much every day. It's a huge joy. and I know it's probably uh, tireless work, but thank you. So grateful.
1: Erica, moving to the Twilight Zone, what do you got this week?
2: All right. I love Twilight Zone this week. I love kids' books. I like kind of quirky kids' books, too. Like, I'm a huge fan of Hilary Belloc. I like, you know, E.B. White. And I also like Roald Dahl, who is the author of such beloved classics as Matilda, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and The Witches. Well, this past week, Puffin, uh, not the bird, but the publishing house, they announced the release of Roe Dahl's classic collection, and they said that in order to keep the author's classic texts in print, they listened to the debate, and they have amended the books for the 2023 audience. So here are a few of my favorite takes on the amendments that they made to Rodol. So, for example, in uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Augustus Gloop, who you might remember from the movie as well, he, we can't call him fat anymore. He's no longer fat. He is enormous. <laughs> Because enormous is so much less offensive <laughs> no, than calling not. someone fat.
1: No, it's not. Enormous <laughs> is so much worse. That was my favorite part yeah. of this. Like, it And just the Oompa
2: it it Like, Remember the Oompa Like, Oompa, Oompa. The doompa, best. De- do- Well, so they are no longer small men. They are little people because really? they're gender neutral. Who knows? What is an Oompa <laughs> Loompa? What is a woman? What is an Oompa Loompa? Honestly, we're that's fair. Sure. I don't
1: know. The Oompa Loompas were interesting cats. <laughs> I can't say what gender they were, but they were short. I'll tell
3: you that.
2: That's right. All right, my other favorite was from Matilda, which is a very funny, it's a very popular musical now. But that's also been scrubbed for, it's a very woke musical. But the original version said um, that, quote, she, one of the main characters, she went on olden day sailing ships with Joseph Conrad. She went to Africa with Ernest Hemingway and to India with Rudyard Kipling. Now, listeners who are in on it know that Rudyard Kipling is highly problematic, for many woke educators. So they revamped the book. Matilda now says she went to 19th century estates, not sailing ships, with Jane Austen. Much less offensive. Power to the woman. Uh, she went to Africa with Ernest Hemingway. He made the cut. And she went to California with John Steinbeck. He's <laughs> less offensive hey. than red Kipling. Jane Austen's
1: so, offending, offending to me. I can't, I, I can't do it. it.
2: I'm sorry, Popo. Would you like to <laughs> dig into that? We could talk about Jane, that.
1: Emma is <laughs> the most. Emma is the most boring book I've ever read in my entire life. Nothing happened. <laughs> total waste of time. I don't understand oh, the obsession oh, with Jane Austen. Okay, Austin. well that I'll just
2: say. opened a whole can of worms, and I'm gonna ignore it um, because my Twilight Zone just got worse. Thanks, Tom.
1: <laughs> uh, Eric and no, I feel uh, I feel anyway, a little bad for ducking so Jane So here's to but. Puffin
2: for really bringing us bringing making sure that all of the children today are in a safe space when they go to read The Witches or Matilda and they won't have to think about nasty men like Joseph Conrad or Rudyard Kipling. So good job, Puffin. Puffin. Way to bastardize one of my favorite authors.
1: Yeah, don't get me started on Dr. Seuss. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Josh, Twyla's Ellen, what you got going on?
0: Well, I was tempted to... including in the Twilight Zone, this article by Cardinal Cupich of Chicago oh no, in American <laughs> oh. Magazine, in which he insisted that critics of Pope Francis's uh, restrictions on the Latin mass should listen to Pope John Paul II. And so I, I just I just want to call that out for a second, because it's like, how on earth could we ever get to a scenario where <laughs> the cardinal, the, the far left-wing cardinal of Chicago, could actually try to encourage people to listen Pope John Paul II because he probably doesn't agree with Pope John Paul II on anything. <laughs> ah, but because Pope John Paul II was like, let's just go along with the mass in the you know in the ordinary the vulgar uh, language, and he, and he was trying to like you know not be super green light to the Latin mass. That therefore, there's one thing Supich and him agree on. So he's going to say you should listen to Pope John Paul II. He's your hero, right? You should listen. It's just such a beautiful, it's a bad faith moment. argument. It's just yeah. it's it's like, wow, you're a cardinal, you're prince of the church, and you're trolling people. It's pretty impressive. <laughs> but I'm gonna I'm gonna not have that as my Twilight Zone, I guess, even though I basically did. Wow. Really, my, no my other Twilight Zone thing would be. This school district in Pennsylvania that finally, I guess, had some sense in their minds and decided to, to change their mind and revoke their previous approval for an after-school Satan club. Nice. It took a public outcry for them to change their mind. This was a club that was designated for children, or should I say targeted at children ages 5 through 12. It's again another one of these ploys by the Satanic Temple, and the thing is, these people, of course, I don't think, you know, we have to take them seriously. Of course, you get that, you get the feeling that they're doing this Satanic stuff almost like it's cosplay, you know, just dressing up in the costumes or whatever. Um, But it's actual damage. You're playing with fire, truly fire, and it's it's pretty pretty crazy stuff. I think, of course that the, the the satanic temple and all these people are doing is that they're just trying to like what the, What I think animates them most. Isn't that they worship the devil. I think what animates them the most is that they want to poke their finger in the eyes of Christians and want to make them mad. And it's like, so I don't get super angry at them. Obviously I don't like them for your children, Yeah, but mostly it's like, guys, stop trying to troll. Like, uh, you uh, know, isn't, like, isn't the irony of this though? Isn't that what Satan is? He He's just trying to poke out. He's a eyes troll. Christian.
1: Right. He's a troll. Yeah. He like, really, that's, yeah, yeah.
0: He's a troll. Cause like the ultimate insight I remember was at C.S. Lewis just reading that like it's not a yin and a yang. It's not equal force of good versus an equal force of evil. It's like evil can only exist by corrupting good things. Right. Mm-hmm. And, it's you a know? parasite. So, right. so, so Satan is a father of lies. He finds something that's good and he corrupts it. He's yeah. like, mm-hmm. oh, you like, you like women, I'll make you lust after them. Like, if, you know, he takes something that's objectively good and makes it evil um, because he orients it towards yourself and selfishness. Uh, so, yeah, that's the twilight zone. I mean, obviously, you know, I think this is this kind of stuff is a wake up call for a lot of Christians that, you know, the, le- the left is crazy and they're after our children. And for so long, I think too many conservatives just sort of took it for granted, like, oh, it's just school, whatever. Schools are always going to be like the way they've always been, like when I was a kid. Like, no. Like, we've given these institutions over to the left, and they've gone totally crazy. Does that mean there's a satanic group at every tr- school? I didn't say that. But there's a lot of, there's a lot of garbage out there. Much choice out.
1: So I had so much to choose from this week. It was, it was kind of a weird week in a lot of ways. But what really stuck out to me the most was the situation in El Salvador, which I'm almost a little bit embarrassed. I feel like I did not know too much about, but there was a video that went viral uh, and it was a really slickly produced video of this prison in which all of these uh, gang members are being ran through the prison. Uh, they look terrified. Uh, it, it was clearly a show of force in this mega prison. And I, I come to find out this is in El Salvador. And the more research I do, the more I realize they have a really, or had, past tense, a really bad gang violence problem, specifically homicide. Uh, gangs ran the country. And so when I did more research on this, I found this so fascinating. So just to, to set the table here, this guy, uh, Naib Bukele of El Salvador. And I, I apologize, his pronunciation is not correct. I, I do. We have some Hispanic period people here at Catholic Vote who are probably going to roast me for bad pronunciations today, <laughs> but he was elected in 2019. It's some interesting notes about him. He was neither from the right-wing party or the left-wing party in El Salvador. This was the first elected leader not to be from one of those two parties since the 80s. Uh, and El Salvador, uh, over the past you know, 20, 30 years, has really suffered from a lot of governmental corruption. There's was a bitter feud between the parties. Um, the leaders were either uh, grifting money a lot of corruption. He was elected at 39 years old. And, uh, previous to his time in politics, he served as the mayor of a few other places. Uh, he worked at a public relations firm, which became it, it, the video became more obvious. And I found some of his other videos. They're all very well produced. He clearly understands media and uh, how to be effective telling stories through that. So, uh, so after he was elected, uh, the murder rate in El Salvador dropped by over 50%. Uh, and you might say, wow, that's crazy. Wow. What happened? Uh, he had a na- nationwide crackdown on these murderous gangs, specifically um, MS-13, that uh, really terrorized the country. And when I'm talking about terrorizing the country, we're talking about their initiations would be to go on the street and kill a random person, rape a random person, sometimes both. Uh, they, they're satanic. Uh, they, they kill for what they call the beast. Uh, they're just the worst of the worst, absolute evil. and they ran that country. When I mean ran that country, like nothing could happen. People couldn't have normal lives because they feared for their life at all times. I mean, the murder rate per, I want to say 100,000 people uh, was somewhere at like 16% homicide rate, 16% 2014. Unbelievable. Like it's, it's almost hard to even put that in perspective as Americans where I could walk down the street and I don't fear for my life. Um, this was truly the situation in El Salvador. And so after this crackdown, Uh, Currently, that percentage is like it's under one percent per hundred thousand people, and they've actually celebrated their first homicide-free day in I think like twenty years uh, this year. Oh my gosh! Um, And so his approval rate is anywhere I I found different statistics, but eighty-five to ninety-two percent of the country, eighty-five to ninety-two percent. Wow! Think about American
0: popularity rates, George. Well, George W. Bush right after 9-11 style race. Correct.
1: And so Mm -hmm. if you think about the same type, I mean, it's the same type of event as in like their country was literally under attack and the same way the United States was under attack by these gangs and he solved the problem, right? And so I did uh, some Google searches, of course, to see what broader mainstream media thought of this guy. So I got a few uh, headlines for you. So we have the rise of Nayib Bukele, El Salvador's authoritarian president. El Salvador's president has taken over the government and installed martial law. They throw around this word authoritarian at him and they are accusing him of being dangerous and a threat to democracy and all of these things. And and I can't pretend like I'm an expert in what's going on there. So, but when I read in further, they were accusing him of not talking to the press and going straight to, uh, he would do interviews with large YouTube channels, um, it's just so interesting to me that, first off, he's young, right? He's, he's 41 now, um, and he wielded his authority as president to solve a, a problem, which is gang, but well, literally murder, I think, as bad as it gets. And people were upset at him because he was being a little bit too aggressive, and the show of force in the, in the prisons, people were like, well, that's inhumane. But it's just crazy. Like, no matter what you do, like, I, nothing is obvious as, like, seeing these MS-13 members with, brazen tattoos on their head on their face like they identify themselves they're, they're proud of it um trying to defend those people is like unthinkable to me but that's the side that a lot of ngos took a lot of sides that the media has taken but the people right the the approval rate doesn't lie and i think authoritarian is kind of like a fake word made up by the left who are upset when people rightfully utilize authority their their power right they utilize authority to solve a problem it's almost something that we don't even really understand in america well because we have yeah, like
2: good authority look, look the mainstream media doesn't have a problem
0: authority. with authoritarianism if it's communist in nature I mean, they, correct they,
1: from the okay. right side
0: fidel castro and lion in winter you know they used to say that kind of stuff they praised him che Guevara was a celebrity and on the college circuit i mean give, these people come on
1: Right, they're full of it. They're
0: full but, of it.
2: Well, Joe Biden's authoritarianism. Well, <laughs> this is, this is what I'm,
1: what was so unbelievable to me is like, we have a true crisis at our border, right? We have more people come across than ever before. And our own president isn't at the border solving this problem, right? Like, this guy, young guy, is the face of this crackdown on g- gangs. He created this video of the prison to humiliate these people who used to run their country to show who runs the country now. He gave this speech. I mean, I was like, I still am kind of in shock at this speech because I feel like I haven't really heard a presidential speech from an American president that's really touched me, I guess, in the way, partially because I think it's kind of the good, good men create good times, good times create weak men, weak men uh, create, you know, good times. It's kind of cyclical. And I feel like we're kind of in a good time part of our um, country. So I'm just going to paraphrase a few, a little bit of it, but I thought it was worth sharing. So for eight months, we have been fighting the war against these gangs and thank God we are winning. This is a very surprising victory that is nearly within our grasp. Let it be clear that the glory is for God, and it is God's glory. We humans are lucky to be instruments of God, all of us, to bring peace, liberty, ha- and happiness to the Salvadorian people. We are the, we are the instruments to heal this land. Each of you is an instrument of God to do this. Peace is not reached through agreements signed between the corrupt, sharing power among killers. Peace is built With hard work and sweat, with effort and with the bravery that you and your brothers and the police have, that's just the beginning. And a little bit of a warning to America here: you will see how the most important values for human being is such as honor, loyalty, bravery, courage, and love for your fellow man. And precisely these values that we are losing with each passing day. And that's why you can see how societies that seem to have won now are degrading, as they are losing the values that made them great. These values were probably not strong in this land and strong in other lands, and that's why they grew and became great. But they are losing these values now. And on the other hand, in El Salvador, these values that previously were degraded in our country are now the most important ones. Just take a look at yourselves. Young men and women who embody all these values, how could a nation not rise up with values such as these? How could a nation not rise up when it puts God first?
2: And you know, you do know the sweet cosmic irony of it, right, Tom?
1: What's the sweet cosmic irony here, Beth?
2: Well, so the savior of El Salvador, uh, his grandparents literally immigrated from Bethlehem in yeah. Israel. he was Isn't uh, that crazy. His, his father was
1: uh, was Islam. I, he he doesn't uh, identify as like a religion. I think he just mm-hmm. he just generally believes in God. He hasn't yeah. like, stated I'm a part of actual really religion. Really interesting guy. Really yeah. like super compelling guy. I mean, the the approval rating does you know speaks for itself, but you know, just I, I don't know, I was just fascinated by the situation. And then to hear the speech and to juxtapose that with like our commander in chief at 80 years old can barely put together two sentences, yeah. and he compelling. never
0: talks to the press either.
1: Never talks, to never talks to the press. Yeah, they got that comment. Uh, I has not. Yeah, like it it also speaks to me like when you have leaders that are of a young vital age and are of the age where their children are young and they they have a lot of responsibility. They got skin in the game. Correct. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. this guy literally couldn't, like most countries couldn't walk around without getting shot. And he's like, I need to do something about this. Broke the political system, came through, solved the problem, and people love him. It's like- Wow, to see that effective, that much effectiveness in to solve a problem like that is crazy. And I, I'm not here to endorse like, you know, everything he does, but on a case study, fascinating.
2: I'll take me some of that. Yeah. Yep.
1: So, <laughs> and that's the Twilight Zone for this week. <laughs> <laughs> had to go international for that one. Yeah. <laughs> international edition.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. The Latinx edition.
2: Oh, hey, look at us. <laughs> Diversity and equity going on here.
0: <laughs> I wonder if the Pope would have been in favor of the extraordinary form if we called it the Latinx Mass.
2: <laughs> Ooh, we could try it.
0: It's always worth See the shot. See what
2: shop. happens.
1: <laughs> All right. And I think we better turn off these mics before we go any further get down road. Right? Right? Yeah, for real. <laughs> uh, so that does it for this week's edition of the Loopcast. Really appreciate you guys, uh, as always. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us, loopcast at or subscribe on YouTube, leave a comment on the video and drop a comment specifically on apple Podcasts. really been getting some great feedback love hearing from you guys uh thank you so much for supporting the show in that way and as always we're praying for you and we'll see you on the next one